Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Jarrett Walker. Jared is president of Jarrett Walker & Associates, a transit consulting firm based in Portland, Oregon, and principal consultant with M.R. Cagney in Australia. He is the author of the popular public transit blog, humantransit.org, and the book, Human Transit, How Clearer Thinking About Public Transit Can Enrich Our Communities and Our Lives. Jarrett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So let's take it all the way back. You came of age in Portland at a time when they were making major strides to curb sprawl and reinforce urbanism in the city. Talk about how that impacted you and your career path. You know, I think we're all impacted by what we experience as children and as teenagers. And um, I happened to be a teenager in the 1970s in Portland, which is really the revolutionary decade in Portland's history. That was the time when Oregon's land use laws were passed, which established the urban growth boundary. They, um, the time when the first major steps on public transit were taken, a major radial freeway out of the city was canceled, and the funding diverted to the first light rail line. The waterfront freeway was torn out and replaced with a park. Two uh, north-south streets right through the center of the city were closed to cars and became the transit mall, which is for buses, and later light rail was added to that. Um, all kinds of stuff. It's an extraordinary amount of stuff to happen in one decade. And being here for that and the conversation around that, the sense that, you know, it, um, the mayor at that time, Neil Goldschmidt, was, was saying for the first time, you know, our, we have a lot of parking, but our city's kind of ugly. And it can be a better place, and it can be a better place for people. So because I was around as a teenager at that time, uh, I was taught that great things are possible <laughs> because they were happening all around me, and that remarkably fast change is possible. It's probably kind of unfair to all the great people who've worked on Portland since then um, that, you know, to some extent, it feels like everything we do is kind of footnotes to the great revolution of the 1970s, and that's and, you know, all sorts of fantastic things have happened since then, particularly around cycling, um, further improvement to the transit network, um, vision zero, all kinds of great things as well. But it was a remarkable time to grow up in terms of how fast things were changing and how dramatically. So it doesn't feel like the Portland Revolution caught on the way some of us might have hoped. Do you agree? And if so, why didn't it? Um, there are so many different aspects to that revolution. And different aspects of it have caught on in different places. After all this time, <clears throat> Oregon land use laws remain largely unique in the strength of the urban growth boundaries and the process for which makes it very slow to expand them. Other jurisdictions, cities and counties have come up with other ways of doing the same thing, tending to be particularly in places where um, agricultural land is valuable, um, green belts of various kinds. Um, but no state has really copied our land. Um, we were the first to tear down freeways, but and, you know other cities are increasingly talking about that. When it comes to transit, we really were the the city that people looked to first as an example of light rail. 
But we also did a, um, a restructuring of the bus network to make it more comprehensively useful all the way back in 1982. And um, that has had a big impact on why transit is so useful in Portland today. Um, and that's an idea that in my own work in network, in network design, I'm, you know, helping to spread all the time. And a lot of that's really, um, become, you know, starting to, to, be, to get real buzz in the last five years or so. So various aspects of the, of the revolution have spread to various places. But when I, I don't go out as a consultant, um, talking about Portland, I don't go out and say, you know, you should want to be like Portland. Here's Portland. That's not my role. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm helping cities start where they are and act in the context of their own values. And uh, that's really, you know, that's really more important than, you know, talking about Portland per se. Do you have some examples where you helped a community or decision makers clarify their values around transit with some visible impact? Sure. Most of, most of our firm's work is helping cities think about public transit. A lot of the core of the work is redesigning bus networks, but also inevitably helping people figure out the policy choices that have to be made in order to, before you begin to do that coherently. So um, our whole practice is built around ways of asking questions and setting up processes that force people to, to clarify their values. Um, essentially force people to make budgetary-like decisions between competing things that they want at the policy level. And virtually all of our projects um, include that sort of work uh, for the elected officials, for the community. Difficult choices like is your transit agent, is your transit service meant to maximize ridership or is it meant to provide a little bit of service to everyone? That's called the ridership coverage trade-off. Those are opposite goals. They lead to different kinds of networks. And so, you know, communities and elected officials need to think about how they want to balance those competing priorities. Um, the big network designs we've done that, you know, you've probably heard about, well, almost everyone has heard about the Houston network redesign that went in in 2015. That redesign would not have been possible if we had not taken the board of directors and the and stakeholders through a process of thinking about that trade-off and consciously deciding where they wanted to be on that spectrum. And we ended up producing a plan that reflected their direction. We could document that it reflected their direction. And as a result, they understood. Uh, they were not surprised by the outcome. Um, and it went forward, I think, very successful. But that's something we do in almost all of our projects. Interesting. Your book, Human Transit, came out in 2011. I'm curious what, if anything, has changed since then. And if it were coming out today, what would be different? What would you include? I think that many of the basic principles that I lay out at the beginning, just sort of how to think clearly about this topic, are as relevant as ever. But obviously, the new challenge that we have with the extraordinary marketing effort that's going into promoting um, various tech industry solutions to transportation um, is something that would have to be addressed more directly. I have written a great deal about this on the blog and continue to write about it. Um, but I, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that, too, of course, because there are a bunch of fads right now, and five years from now, the fads will be different. And um, my, my book becomes dated if I spend all the time talking about whatever the fad is at the moment. 
That's why I didn't talk very much about streetcars in 2011, even though that was the big fad at the time. And um, why I prefer to sort of help people help people focus on the fundamental questions of transit rather than trying to fend off whatever the current uh, fashion is. So the issues are somewhat timeless. I tend to approach them philosophically. So yeah, I, I I tend to be coming all the way back to, you know, what would clear thinking about this topic sound like? Principles like being careful when we're talking about an issue to use words that describe it objectively rather than use words that were coined by someone who's trying to sell us something. Right? That's a very common kind of problem. What's, um, an, what's an example of that? Well, microtransit is a good example of that. Um, microtransit is a word that was coined that, that is effectively, it's a brand for something that's supposedly a new invention, but it really isn't a new invention. It's a combination of extremely familiar things that have been around for a very long time. And so the, uh, uh, the, the distraction of novelty, the notion that, you know, what transit needs is some sort of new revolution, is something that we will always be sold, that will always be pitched to us by companies that are trying to sell us things. My view is that transit doesn't need a revolution. It needs a back-to-basics experience of coming to understand the value of high-capacity fixed-route transit, uh, including frequent bus services, and um, and the need to recommit to that as the only kind of mobility that actually liberates huge numbers of people within the very limited space of a big city. And I, if we keep coming back to the geometry of that, you know, you can, you know, it helps you, it helps you keep up, keep one foot on the floor as you're, you know, facing all of these appeals to excitement of various kinds. So you've worked internationally, most notably in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. What ideas, both good and bad, are being exported and imported in the transit realm? That's a great question. Um, I think we are becoming more and more comfortable with a robust role for the private sector in the actual operations of transit under contract with government. Britain, under Margaret Thatcher, went through a fascinating experiment in pretending that public transit was something that could be run competitively and basically getting the government completely out of it. The idea was basically that if Joe's red buses and Jim's blue buses are allowed to run down the same street competing with each other the way airlines compete with each other on a route, then the, the liberated customer will be able to choose the company he'd rather do business with, he or she would rather do business with, and um, that will be, you know, capitalism as it's at its finest. And what actually happened was that it turned out that people wanted to just get on the bus that was coming first. They didn't really want to participate in that sort of market. And so Joe and Jim you know, the private companies just divided up the turf and became monopolies. And so you basically got all of the problems of government monopolies minus the accountability to the voters. So, and we also got just utterly incoherent and wasteful networks because uh, private companies were designing pieces of the network instead of trying to conceive the whole thing. There was also no way to coordinate transit planning with other forms of city planning. It's a mess, and it's still a mess to some degree in Britain, although the pendulum swings away from it. In my years in Australia and New Zealand, I, uh, which were in the 2006 to 11, I was fundamentally working on helping with the process of, of bringing government back into public transit and into the kind of role we expect 
uh, in the United States, where there is a central planning authority. However, privatization of operations, that is hiring a company to run your buses and hire your bus drivers, um, is a very interesting idea. It's something that is being tried more and more in the U.S., Austin and New Orleans, for example, are two big cities that do it. And, um, and I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see more of that. One of the great things it does is it allows a transit agency to really be a planning and policy agency instead of having a planning and policy function attached to the edge of a giant company that mostly just, you know, is about getting buses on the road. Interesting. Is there an industry where this is working well? This idea of operator versus owner and allowing the public agency to stay at the policy level? I think Austin, I would point to Austin's Capital Metro as a pretty good example. Um, there, but there are quite a number of other cities that work like this, um, Tucson in Arizona, um, where you get that clean separation of operations from planning and policy. Look, fundamentally, when, uh, I mean, I have a memory from when I was an intern at Portland's Transit Agency in about 1982, where because I was the most junior employee, I got to do the big thinking about the future of the network that nobody else had time to do. And I remember once my boss was was in my cubicle and we were talking about the big future of the network. And someone came down the hall saying, the general manager needs all the senior staff in his office in five minutes to talk about the bus stop at 100th and Broadway. And so the whole activity, the whole agency shut down. My boss had to leave. And they all went into a, a conference room to talk about a bus stop where there were possums or something and people were out there picketing about the quality of their bus stops. And, you know, I went back to my cubicle as the lowliest intern and did long-range planning. Now, that's sort of what it's like in a directly operated transit agency. It's just, you know, operations uh, operations and maintenance and the things that that raises are just the dominant reality of the agency. They're what the senior management spends most of their time dealing with. And so the ability to separate that out so that you can have a strong planning function. You can have a strong conversation with the community. You can have a conversation with the community that is not interrupted every time there's an accident or an incident or something like that. Um, has, I, think is, I think is really valuable. Vancouver, BC's transit agency has a similar arrangement, although they actually own their operating subsidiary. But it, I, I was with that agency, working inside that agency for a while, and it was really nice that we were not dealing with operations crises every Interesting. I find that in the U.S. we are quick to look to Europe for best practices, and I'm speaking about the planning field in general, which I think can be problematic given how heterogeneous the U.S. is. I'm wondering if you would agree, and if so, are there things we should be looking more to South and Central America or Asia for? First thing I'd say to, Amer- to the typical American city, you know, I wouldn't say this in New York City, but I would say, uh, but I would say this in most American cities, is before you get into envying Europe, start by envying Canada, because Canada is, I think, a sort of realistic first phase of what you should be able to aspire to. It's a culturally and economically familiar country. It's made up of most of the same landscapes and most of the same kinds of economic activity. Um, many of its cities are obviously comparable to a city south of the border. And it has about twice as much transit service per capita as American cities do. So it's a good place to go to just experience the effects of sheer quantity, what it is like to just have a lot more transit service. Um, it's faster to get around. Buses come sooner. They go to more places and so on. 
Um, as a result, I think Canadians, I, I think I notice when I follow Canadian debates, and there are certainly exceptions, that there's a somewhat higher level of understanding of the basic issues that tends to be shared in the debate. Not as good as there would be in Western Europe, certainly, but you know, much better than what you see on average in the United States. So I, I look to can I recommend people look at Canada precisely because it isn't very. It's pretty familiar, and its cities look a lot like American cities and have similar kinds of problems. I think we need to be very reluctant about taking lessons from the developing world. Until we have automation, the dominant aspect of the cost of public transit is labor. And when you go to the developing world, you're in a fundamentally different situation because labor is so cheap. So a lot of ideas that look good in the developing world don't necessarily work as well here. Um, and so, you know, I think we need to be a little more cautious. But, but you know, definitely look to Europe and East Asia as, you know, the leaders among wealthy countries in transit. But really look at Canada in terms of a country that's consistently, generally doing better than the U.S. is on transit, but is still, you know, is still familiar. It's something that, that illustrates things that your city really ought to be able to do. Now, if something's possible in Calgary, it ought to be possible in Salt Lake City. Fair enough. A visit to your blog reveals this statement. My goal is not to make you share my values, but to provide perspectives that help you clarify yours. I can't think of a more honest and important endeavor. How do people react to that? Really well. Um, and I built my whole consulting practice around that idea. That I, I as one of the ways I'll put this is I aspire as a consultant to never make a recommendation. I aspire to foster a reality-based, fact-based, creative study process that allows local leaders to come to their own conclusions. Now, not all local leaders are up to this. Some people, you know, many of them would, would prefer to have a consultant to blame, you know, and be able to talk about the consultant's report and blame the consultant when, you know, they get negative feedback. But my role is instead to really put elected officials, put the community to work thinking about what their values are and therefore what will count as success for them. Um, it's really sort of the essence of how we approach things. And not only has it worked very well for us, but I just don't feel comfortable doing it any other way. Yeah, seems like the field could use more of that. Your blog also states that the job of developing great transit must never be left entirely to experts. So I'm wondering how you create sincere and inclusive community engagement processes with that in mind. It is precisely about really thinking about and delineating the boundary between what is a technical question and what is a values question. So come back to the ridership coverage trade-off, for example. The reason I always ask that question is that some people are judging transit based on its ridership. Other people are judging transit based on whether it serves them, goes where they need to go, serves communities they care about. And most of the people who are making those demands don't understand that they want opposite things and that they need to be asked to choose between. I think our outreach processes are authentic precisely because they are so difficult. <laughs> um, I am not trying to make it, I, I will often tell boards boards of directors and community leaders. My job is not to make this easy. My job is to make it clear. My job is to help people understand the consequences of their choices, not make those choices for them. So, And so the, one of the things that, that is critical about that is 
your balance of ridership and coverage. There are other kinds of goal statements like uh, of goals like that that you as your community choose for yourself. Those are yours. You get you through your elected officials get to decide those things. But the technicians, you know, those of us who have to implement these ideas, get to ask you clarifying questions about your values, and that's where it gets hard. It's so easy for a, to get a bunch of well-intentioned community leaders in the room, put up flip charts and ask them, put them at little tables and ask them to wordsmith their vision of the future of public transit. And we know what happens. Up on, you walk around in a few minutes and up on all the flip charts are the world, are the words equity, sustainability, prosperity, justice, and so on. But none of that tells us what to do. That doesn't answer the actual questions that arise in the work. And so the point of difference is that we ask people the actual questions that arise in the work, which often requires them to make harder choices between things that they value. But it's not, it's not, it's not amazing. This is really just what budgeting is to a great extent too. But, but it's the only way I know to do it, honestly, since I don't want to make these decisions for people. Um, and most, and although some elected officials certainly just want to hide and don't want to, don't want to have to make hard choices, I find that a majority of almost every board that I work with understands that this is what elected officials are for, this is what their job is. Can you share an example or two of the clarifying questions that get beyond the the buzzwords or the usual suspects that you just listed? Sure. Um, forcing people to think about the ridership coverage trade-off is one of them. Forcing people to think about short-term versus long-term trade-offs is another one. You listen to public outreach on transit especially a long-range transit plan. And the development community is interested in 10, 15 years out. Some people in the business community are interested in 10, 15 years out. Maybe 10% of average people are thinking that far in the future. Most of them are thinking much shorter term. So you have to trigger a conversation about that. Uh, A basic question about building a large piece of infrastructure like light rail is, um, shall we wait to go through that whole construction process to have this special thing or would it be better to just be, be improving things incrementally so that we're getting improvement as we go? There's a similar issue that's raised by big infrastructure, which is, which I think, by the way, that needs to be much more consciously thought about. We tend to assume that the next step in transit development beyond a bus system is some kind of corridor infrastructure with light rail or bus rapid transit, some sort of big thing in a particular place. But I'm always wanting to ask people, are you sure you want a big thing in a particular place or would you rather, or would you prefer to have a lower level of improvement, but still some, but still an improvement that can be spread across the whole city? So is it, is the best thing to, you know, build one bus rapid transit corridor or to improve, uh, spot intersections where, you know, buses are delayed all over the city? You know, those are two different ways to spend the same amount of money. And we, I think we go too quickly to the idea that we want the big project. And that gives us all sorts of grief that may not be worth it. Like, you know, for example, if you're going to build a starter line, some kind of new technology, it will not be in most city councilors' districts. Most of the city residents will not live near it. And so the difficulty of that conversation about, you know, who gets it this decade and who might get an extension next decade, um, it's very, very painful for local government and very painful for, for elected officials and communities. And, and so I want to ask people, I don't tell them, there, there are many cities that definitely need to do quarter projects, but I, but I want to ask them that question, you know, have you thought about the idea that you could do a more distributed kind of, kind of benefit 
that would spread over more of the city and would still be of value. That's an example. But what we basically do is um, require citizens, require communities to actually think about the hard choices that arise in actual transit planning. So we're not interested in your wordsmith statement about vision, about equity and prosperity. We know you're for that. What we, what we need help with is here are the problems that actually arise in our work. And here are the questions that actually come up when you're designing a transit network. And so those are the things we need people to think about. We're really, um, we've had a lot of success with this. We really feel like people appreciate being asked these hard questions, even though they are hard. And not everyone, not everyone likes it. Some people think we should just make it easy for them. But, you know, this is what decision making really is. And when we do it this way, um, a large share of the public, I think, comes to understand, wow, this is hard. On the other hand, this is real <laughs> in a way that, you know, it's easy to question whether a lot of outreach is real. But this is real. Sound like a personal trainer. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a little bit of that. I am curious, though, um, how do you make sure the right people are in the room? Because that's an important part of that process. And we can all talk about diversity and inclusion and know the the main categories um, we should include there. But also, for example, I've been transit dependent for 15 years four of which as a mother. And so my relationship with transit right. completely changed once I had to get a small human being around. So I'm just curious, how do you make sure the right people are in the room? There are several different layers of this. Nobody has ever gotten all of the right people in the same room in the right proportions, <laughs> such that they, their vote would precisely match what the community wants. That's not realistic. And not everyone has time to participate in much of a process. Uh, one of the issues I've always had with public meetings, for example, is that they essentially discriminate in favor of people who have time, people who aren't busy. And as a result, <laughs> transit agencies get an overwhelming amount of, of input from people who are basically not in a hurry. <laughs> and that leads to priorities that are rather different from those of somebody who is in a hurry and who really needs to get places on time and has to punch time clocks and so on. Because people who are that busy tend not to engage. So I think there are several steps to this. We really do believe in de-emphasizing the public meeting for that reason, um, and also just because I don't think it's a particularly effective way to hear from lots of people. It tends to be just another way to hear from the people who will write letters to you anyway. We rely a lot on web survey, and I think we're now at a point with that sort of technology where, although people certainly differ in their level of comfort with it, we can steer large numbers of people toward that sort of interface. And there's wonderful, wonderful um, development happening around web surveying, user experience that's designed to make it very friendly, very easy for lots of, lots of diverse ranges of people to use. I think there's also still the important role of going out to community organizations, meeting people where they are, engaging with them in their own communities, and um, that's sort of the speaker's bureau, you know, go out to churches, go out to key organizations and present to them where they are and engage with them. And, you know, the thing we do that's different from a lot of other things, though, is that, again, I don't, I don't want these people to tell me what they want. I want, to, I want them to tell me how they would make real choices that arise. And um, 
I mean, I certainly want to hear from them about vision and so on, but the really challenging questions are about priorities. And we've spent a lot of time trying to think about how to make those kinds of priority questions not sound technical and geeky, but sound, you know, like, yeah, these are the sorts of decisions that life is life requires. The time issue is an interesting one. I'm glad you raised that. And I have a little bit different take on it that I'd like to get your reaction on. Here in Chicago, um, the red line is the main north-south connector for the city, and it doesn't even serve the entire city. So throughout the entire history of the Chicago Transit Authority, we've had a significant portion of the city that isn't served at all by rail. They're working on that now, but it strikes me that basically we're saying implicitly your time is not worth much. We think it's okay for it to take you two hours to get to school or to a job. And uh, it resonates with me because, like I said, I used to take more transit. Now I've kind of developed a nasty lift habit because I have that option. <laughs> I have that option, and I feel like my time is more valuable um, spent getting around more quickly. I was wondering if that's something you've thought about, sort of the value of people's time and how it relates to transit. Right. And one of the things, uh, let, me, let, me, um, let me have a couple of reactions to that. I caution against using the presence or absence of rail as the only measure of the quality or usefulness of transit. Fair enough. Um, Buses can provide excellent transit if other stuff gets out of their way. And I know you have some experiments with that underway in Chicago in in planning stages. So it's I wouldn't talk about the presence or absence of rail. Here's what we like to talk about. Um, We like to talk about where can you actually get to in a given amount of time if you're in a particular place. So plunk down your point around the map. Here's where I live. Here's where my business is. Here's where my grandmother lives. What can a person do if they are there? And, you know, the image of this is some sort of blob around that location. You know, there's where I could get to in a given amount of time. And I say, okay, that's the wall around your life. Think about the sense in which we're all basically in prison. And the walls of our prison are the limits of where we could get to in a reasonable amount of time. And what if we were trying to move those walls outward so that people could get to more places in a reasonable amount of time, therefore have more choices, do more things? That's pretty much the way I start talking about transit quality because I find that resonates with people. And it's a way of bypassing a lot of it's bypassing a lot of distractions. And what's more, it's something that everyone can understand. You know, the conventional approach is to go out and say, oh, we have this proposal and here's the projected ridership and that's why it's a good thing. Present the whole thing as though it's a business proposition. That's not what most people care about. What most people want to know is how is this going to improve my city? How is it going to improve my life? And that's the question we're always trying to answer when we, um, you know, when we do any sort of evaluation of an episode. Very interesting. It feels like now more than ever, we are a society driven by convenience, and we don't adequately understand the consequences of individual action when taken in aggregate. And what's on my mind here is everything from our overuse of straws in our drinks to same-day delivery to Amazon's eventual purchase of our souls. And this was... So this was epitomized in a recent Twitter interaction between you and Elon Musk. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what happened, especially for listeners who may not have uh, followed it. Well, um, Elon Musk is 
one of many influential people who has decided that he is an expert on urban transportation because he's good at a lot of other things. And he is very good at a lot of other things. And even just the work he's done on batteries um, is enough to is an, is important enough for him to deserve his fame. However, his approach to um, his approach to urban transportation. We were talking here particularly about the Boring Company, which is a company that is proposing to build new kinds of subways under Los Angeles, under our cities, which are designed not just for trains, but more precisely for little pods carrying small numbers of people and include, more importantly, your personal car, which is going to drive onto a little elevator, descend into the tunnel onto a, some sort of platform and be whisked away across the city to your destination without you having to get out of your seat. It's very much the classic example of a vision that is entirely about convenience for relatively fortunate people, because once you run the numbers on how, what ridiculous amounts of space this would take, um, just to get everyone's car in the tunnel of Russia. Never mind the intrinsic inefficiency of tunnels that are really too small to run very high capacity services through them. It becomes clear, as always, that this is, this idea is the result of relatively fortunate people thinking about their own problems instead of thinking about what would actually work on the scale of a city. That's a dynamic that I call elite projection. You can look at it for an article of mine called The Dangers of Elite Projection. I'm not bashing elites. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being elite, but I am observing from long experience that very fortunate people are prone to make the mistake of assuming that what they personally like or find attractive would be um, would work for everyone and should be the basis for designing the city. And I think that's the fundamental mistake behind the boring cup. So I pointed that out in a tweet and um, in response to something or other that the boring company had put out, I don't recall, uh, and he responded, you're an idiot, which was interesting information about how thin his skin is, but its primary, the primary purpose of that basically was to bring some attention to what I had been saying, and um, so, you know, that's all that's all for the good. Um, he's welcome to call me an idiot as often as he likes, but... Um, so that was the essence of that exchange. Really, the point of it is to help people stop and think about elite projection, to stop and think about this risk that you have, that we all have, of, of imagining that everyone will want what we want, or that the world would work if everyone could have what we want. This is, of course, how the disaster of car dependence happened. Cars were initially an exciting idea for the technological elite, that were tried out first by relatively wealthy people like Mr. Musk of his day, who were, of course, sold to the wealthy, were not much of a problem as long as almost as very few people had one. It was only once uh, they tried to imagine that, okay, well, everyone should have these things. That's when it stopped working. <laughs> That's when it began creating all of these problems. And so we, we should learn from that experience and be aware when we are being sold something similar. Namely, the notion that great convenience, that the experience of the user, that improving the experience of the user is in itself an adequate argument for something. Because you can, you can improve the experience of user in, the user in all sorts of ways that will be terrible for our cities and for our society. How hopeful are you that we can reverse some of this? Um, 
I'm not very interested in my own level of hope. I mean, somehow I get through the day, so I think I have the basic levels of hope necessary to do that. Um, I guess my reaction to questions about hope, I think it's related to the fact that uh, one of the things I try as a consultant is not to make predictions and to not really care about predictions. You know, when I'm in the middle of a decision process, you know, I try very hard to not care about what they decide. I just want to, I just want them to decide clearly and in an awareness of the consequences. I think that with everything that's going on right now and everything that's happening politically and in our culture, um, there's plenty of reason to be hopeful and there's plenty of reasons to despair. And, you know, on different days, I do both of those things. Fair enough. So... I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot. I am not a transit planner, just a transit enthusiast. I'm wondering uh, where you would point people if they want to learn more. Can you share your blog and any other resources with our listeners? Yeah. Um, if you Google um, City Lab, F-C-I-C-Y-L-A-B, one word, uh, and my name, you'll encounter several of my articles there, which are among the more sort of broadly um, readable things I've written. The My book, Human Transit, uh, for somebody who wants to spend the time, is really a very friendly, readable introduction and explanation of just the nuts and bolts of how transit works, written in a very friendly, readable way with lots of storytelling. Um, you can find the introduction to that book online. I encourage you to read this introduction online and then decide whether to buy the book. You can find that by Googling the words Human Transit Introduction. Finally, my blog, humantransit.org, has a base, you know, new, new, new content that's going up there all the time, but there is a basics page, uh, there's a link uh, to word basics, which has relatively timeless articles explaining you know, some of the critical um, ideas of transit that people need to understand. Well, thank you so much for your insights and your candor. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Well, so have I. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.